0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Solve for Why Vlogcast. This is episode number eleven, part B. Part A is in the never-to-be-retrieved files. As we spoke for an hour on camera, only to realize we weren't recording. Damn shame. Welcome back, Nick. Happy to have you. Today we're gonna cover all things Triton High Roller, Bryn Kenny's success, fuck the solvers. I'm clairvoyant. You're tilted. I'm so tilted right now. I feel good, though. It's loose. Yeah. It's we, we're going to get back into this. A uh, couple of things I just want to get out of the way. Again, we are quickly running out of seats to the Academy, so if you have any desire to come in September, I think we have two left for cash and three for MTT. Get after it. Uh, we'll be waiting for your submissions. Also, still time to win a seat uh, as we are doing a giveaway for each coming up
1: in the next three weeks i'm you? on my second cup of coffee so
0: all right so we're gonna get into it all right so i want to hit you with something real quick um this this past week i did a little day in the life segment for the vlog part of this uh and i gotta tell you it's tedious to carry around a camera and record everything you do all day long but it made me realize just how fucking busy i am 7am Rose and shine, motherfucker. I'm exhausted. But we have work to do. Alright, I decided to take you on a little day in the life of kinda of walk you through what a normal, I guess, weekday afternoon or weekday day would look like for me. Um, First thing I do before going to the gym is uh, hop on the scale just to kind of get a little metric that I can record. As is usually the case, I'm running late. I'm going to walk you guys through a supplement routine real quick Uh, right after I... We are headed to the gym, it's about 7.40, which means I'm late. So one thing I wanna talk about real quickly, um, you know, at the onset of this video, I was half asleep, exhausted, and no part of me really wanted to get out of bed. As you start to grow up, there's no real mo- roadmap. You know, There's no plan of attack for how you're gonna turn into an adult or what even defines being an adult. And I think we fight this for a big portion of our lives where we just have this eternal struggle between what's the mature decision and what's the childish decision, and it's hard. It's hard to uh, strike a balance between fun and adult. It's hard to uh, step up to the plate and do what's asked of you in a, I guess, uh, responsible kind of way. And what I found is that when that shift occurred for me was when I decided that I was no longer gonna just wake up on my own every day. It made me remember uh, the discipline necessary in order to accomplish a goal, and that little decision was enough to like flip a switch, where it's like, okay, this is the this is the mature, responsible thing to do. I set this alarm because I have goals and I need to meet them. So of course I could hit snooze, I can go back to sleep, I can go to the gym at another time, but I'm not going to because I had a plan laid out the day before. And it all begins with me getting my ass out of bed. It's a tough world out there if you're soft. And I think that simple little things like making your own food, setting an alarm, doing your own laundry, whatever the case may be, making your bed, these simple tasks kind of instill in us uh, a sense of self-worth and discipline necessary in order to conquer the dead.
1: All right, that's
0: a wrap. I'm dead. Hunt's on a mission. You poisoned me just for another
1: dollar in your pocket. Now I am the violence. I am the sickness. Won't accept your silence.
0: Alright, just got back from the gym. It's about uh, 9:30-ish or so. Um, I'm an idiot and I left the sauna door open while I was gone, so it's not hot yet. Just turn it back on. Should take about a half hour to heat up. So in the meantime, I am going to meal prep for the day, actually for the week because I'm going to make uh, chili and it's an interesting concoction. So I'm going to walk you guys through it. mentioned that uh, we got a big meeting at the office today. Um, we are bringing on a couple of new employees. Uh, one's a project manager, um, good friend Andy, who is just the best at this stuff. And then the second is uh, actually Nick Howard. Uh, I shouldn't call him an employee. We're kind of like partnering up for this big project that we're about to uh, unleash. So I kind of want to tease that a little bit. Um, our plan is to launch, one of the most comprehensive free training sites that the community has seen. So uh, effectively, we are going to provide a very streamlined curriculum for anybody who's interested in getting into study. Um, One of the greatest problems that I've come across as an instructor over the last three years is people are just very lost uh, when it comes to where they're currently at, where they need to get to, where they should start, what the end point looks like, etc. We wanted to address that need and solve that problem. So it'll be laid out very comparable, I guess, to a college curriculum where there are just courses. And you'll start with the course that you feel uh, most addresses your absolute low end baseline need and progress through from that point forward. So it'll be a linear, progression where you just move from piece of content to piece of content to piece of content. Uh, the plan right now is to have 12 courses launched, but uh, we're going to see today in today's meeting uh, what that full curriculum is actually going to flesh out to look like and uh, how much of a workload each coach has available. To We'll be bringing you a lot of good shit in the near future.
1: no idea, has signed
0: me, on do doubt it But it's still visionary to the death of me Yeah, I'm trying to make it, but I gotta find a recipe Greatest of all time, I want the world addressing me Emails have been sent Session is underway Got all my favorites at the table My man, The Butcher We've been battling. All right, we've got him. Won about 4,500, playing uh, 510 deep, 200 big blind buy-in. Definitely went through some variance. I think at my peak, I was up like uh, 10,500. I lost a 4K pot with the flop nut straight versus ace high. So I had queen jack in a four bet pot blue, jack of spades, and a four bet pot on 10, nine, eight, rainbow, uh, he bet two thirds pot on the flop, I called, turn was the king of diamonds, he bet half pot with like a quarter pot behind, I shoved, he called, he had ace five with diamonds, and hit it, shockingly enough. Same player, later, played a massive pot with me where he three bet from the small, I four bet the big, bl- or uh, sorry, the button, to uh, 45 blinds, I think, or 40 blinds, something like that. So it went um, three and a half blinds to 11 blinds to like 45 blinds, and we are 400 blinds effective. He calls, flop is uh, 10, nine, four rainbow. I have ace nine. He checks, I check back. Turn is the seven of diamonds, putting two, two diamonds out. That's half pot, I call. River is the ace of spades, giving me top and middle. And he bets 80% pot with um, exactly a min raise behind. So I think I have the best hand here quite a bit. Um, it's a four bet pot. Ranges should be pretty narrow. I should be getting a lot of value from like ace king, ace queen, ace jack suited. Um, he might even like bet hero with hands like, well, not even hero, but like he might have hands like 10-9 suited as well. Um, so I stuff it and he has eight six of diamonds. But it's my boy. It's the butcher we've been battling. So uh, that's actually where I want a lot of my money as well. Can't complain too much. I am going to wrap the day and go hit the hot tub. That's a wrap.
1: How sad that makes me, but also
0: how invigorated it makes me. When you decided to uh, kind of like play a little bit less poker and dive harder into the entrepreneurial side of things. Like, what drove you, I guess? Because isn't there just like a part of you that enjoyed the freedom of being a poker player, not having to set an alarm, not having to have responsibility to anything other than showing up to the game and
1: winning? Yes. I can't say that it was actually a totally conscious decision what I was doing when I decided to go full on into coaching. I remember... I made the decision spontaneously. I was playing a live event EPT double and had to be probably three years ago. No business being there. I was sure. in some 5k tournament, just riding a heater. Um, at the time I was crushing the Bavada 1020 games back around the days where like me and Oh, hey Cindy and a couple other guys in my circle were kind of just like at the top of that pool. And. My success was good and i think i had a choice whether or not to go to 5k and nosebleeds or to polarize into the coaching path of trying to get guys better or good enough to play high stakes and i chose the latter Um, and i think there were definitely limiting beliefs active in that choice but i also think that there was some there was a lot of intelligence in that choice too looking back on it i think I can't say it was right or wrong. It kind of just put me on the trajectory that I currently am at, where I sort of feel like my professional career as a player took a three-year pause almost, two- to three-year pause. Um, But I'm playing a lot more now, and I I like playing again, and I really like the upgrades we were able to make with our methodology through training players up to high stakes, not just on the technical side but on the mindset side too, which I think was a lot of what was holding me back. So maybe it's best that I didn't push ahead sure. back then because who knows what could have happened.
0: But like from a day-to-day standpoint, there, there seems to be way more pain than pleasure in the idea of like setting down an entrepreneurial path, especially like, I don't know what your background is to be honest, as long as I've known you, I, I don't know like what you've studied uh, in school or anything like that. But like for me, business was like a really sharp learning curve. And it was something that I spent day in and day out really studying my ass off for
1: in order to be prepared to not fail it was highly experimental for me i didn't have any sort of really formal background in what i was getting myself into i had an intention that i knew what i wanted to do which was to help people initially and then i had to eventually create a structure around it yeah. which served to be the really hard part right a lot of what i got into was just the extreme ownership type Mentality, I guess you could say. I almost see a lot of mindfulness or uh, ownership type practices, discipline type practices as uh, my education, but a lot of that is just practitioner based. Yeah. Like, let's be honest the best way you learn from being an entrepreneur is trying shit, having it not work and then making the decision as to whether or not you want to take accountability over that or blame the other party. Right. And I think what I saw very quickly was that the process was going to be quite short lived if I didn't take ownership over just about everything, which is not easy to do, sure. and you're, not, you're never going to be perfect in that process, but reflecting on the day-to-day at the end of every day, I saw that the weaknesses that I was sensing in my character always came back to me trying to make it somebody else's problem.
0: Right. And I think that's kind of human nature by, by default. Uh, you know, for me personally, like what I've come to understand being a little bit more reflective four years into this journey, six years into the high stakes, whatever, and and whatever, 16, 17 years into poker as a whole, what I noticed basically being uh, three or four years into this business venture now, six years into the high stakes and 16 years into poker, is that there was a clear transition from being a kid who didn't know what the fuck he was going to do with his life and didn't really have any aspirations to do anything selfless outside of just, you know, the the traditional rat race bullshit that we're taught where it's like I wanted a roof over my head, I wanted to make money, I wanted to uh, pursue things that I enjoyed. Um, and largely that was just baseball. And when I had to give that up, poker just filled the void in a lot of ways. After transitioning from filling that void to actually – facilitating this concept that like I'm really good at this and I have the potential to be great if I really find a path to like pouring myself into it. There was like a transition where I stopped acting on these childish desires that are just like self-motivated and self-driven because they're so shallow in nature, right? Like poker does a great way of helping you conceptualize that if you get your wildest dreams handed to you, it's not going to be very fulfilling. But the process towards working towards them and knowing that those dreams are going to continually change and get higher and higher is like one of the most enjoyable things that ever occurs. And as I transitioned into high stakes and then laterally into business, what I recognized was it was the challenges that really drove me. And the idea of being able to encapsulate these challenges over something that wasn't completely self-serving where uh, you know ultimately now my bigger goals are to be able to provide in a very complete way problem solving metrics for those who like that de- desperately lack and and taking it to the level of um, you know solving maybe really complex world issues like challenged youths in inner city education all these other types of things now all of a sudden like I have this bigger focus and what I realize now is that it's all rooted in the same thing that drove my dreams to begin with as a kid and that's just sheer and utter discipline for the. For the, for the final end goal. Which is? I, I mean, in this instance, it's altruism in some capacity, right? It's like, ultimately what I wanna develop is education centers where uh, kids are exchanging after school activities for hours of uh, like logical learning or rational learning, right? So they'd be teaching logic, they'd be teaching uh, functional education, like being able to refinance and basically the stuff that's not being currently taught. But from a zoomed out perspective, what it really, Turned into is like as you go through this like day-to-day vlog that I created, it's it's the regimen. Like I just love the idea of pouring all of your energy into these very focused goals. And that was always me. If if you look at my baseball
1: trajectory, it was the same thing. I
0: ate it, I slept it, I breathed it.
1: I've been working on this little theory. It goes something like this: if you put someone who is extremely disciplined, in the atmosphere or in the vicinity of someone who's not disciplined and you have them live together and you have them have to experience each other's lifestyle the first thing that starts to happen in a very in a very short period of time is that the person who does not have discipline starts to go crazy in the presence of the person who has massive discipline and it's a it's a weird thing because you would never think that the monotony of discipline would be enough to drive someone mental. Mm-hmm. But realistically, I think what's happening is that the people who have their lives logistically handled, and I use that term to basically outline, are you on a disciplined schedule? Those are the types of people that really trigger, their presence triggers people who are undisciplined. Yeah, And it's a weird thing, and you can't really experience it unless you're around it. No, I get it, trust me. Uh, but it's almost like, Someone who's undisciplined will burn up in the atmosphere of someone who is disciplined because it's almost enough it's almost like a Chinese water drip. Yeah. Being around someone who's disciplined. It's a very monotonous life on the surface. Right. We wake up, we do the same morning routine. Yep. We execute one of three different types of days yep. that we have mapped out yep. over and over and over again. And I think
0: But the trajectory is so like non-standard non-boring non-mundane
1: right well it's the same reason that i think it, in the last conversation we emphasized a lot the difference is your your ability to leverage the long-term perspective yeah i have a very clear vision of the piece of the pie that i'm biting off mm-hmm. and a lot of that is what generates the amount of uh pressure that i think i feel on, yeah. a, on a daily basis yeah um and we touched. Briefly on that in 1.0, the one that the audio got cut out of, but the cliffs would be basically that the amount of intensity that I think people sense in me and you that may make us unrelatable on some level is really the product of having a very clear understanding of the piece of the pie that we've decided to bite off and what's required to actually scale there. Um, So for me, at least, it is a process of trying to solve for why as to what is, the, what is the fulfillment I'm actually getting out of the direct experience? Mm-hmm. Because for me, I'm, I wasn't actually able to find fulfillment in just mapping towards the five-year goal or the vision. Right. So that doesn't really do it for me. And I almost feel like I could prove structurally that, that, is, that that's flawed in some sense. I mean, people are always saying enjoy the journey as a cliche. Yeah, I can't say I've really been able to enjoy the journey I've enjoyed the moment to moment freedom that I access when I accomplish something that I thought I wasn't gonna be able to do.
0: Okay, that's fair. I, I think that that is encapsulated in the enjoy the journey pro, uh, concept because what it's really saying is enjoy the process and be adaptive because whatever you think the end is, is gonna move. Mm. It's always a moving target. The, the actual path that you're pursuing is gonna change a thousand times over but where you're gonna be able to stay the course is through this disciplined regimen that you've created for yourself. And the way I envision it is a lot of what we talked about last week where this is just front-loading all of the pain, right? It's painful to wake up every single day earlier than you want to, to, to grind in the gym and put in laborious work just so that you can feel better, move better, look better, all these things that feel on the surface rather vain. But they're incredibly important to our existence and to our motivation to be better people right so rather than caving to -to day-to-day indulgences and claiming happiness right because this is what i would argue that the majority of people do they forego the discipline and instead endure a small level of suffering on the day-to-day by being indulgent and then ultimately never really arriving at any opportunity or event or anything else that, that moves them uh, enough in a positive direction for them to say, wow, that was life-changing.
1: And the, the issue that I take with those types of people, although I've become increasingly more empathetic towards someone who says, I don't want that path of optimization, I'm okay where I currently am. Yeah. In a lot of ways, that used to trigger me because I envied the people who could be content right. with the, the lesser life. Not yeah. that I would invalidate anybody's lifestyle, sure. but let's be honest. Some people are on a path of optimization. Some people are living day to day.
0: I mean, let's break it down to what it is. The world is broken down into worker bees and and uh, leaders, and there's just no getting around that. So for a lot of people, finding their quaint piece of, piece of happiness uh, on their little lot of land and working their nine to five, that is absolutely a good, noble life.
1: Yeah, absolutely nothing wrong with that. The moment that we would invalidate that is the moment that we expose our lack of intelligence and unhappiness. Yeah. That's just how that works. Like, structurally, you could prove that anybody who tried to condemn someone's lifestyle isn't right within themselves. Right. The question is, how do we start to create more of an avenue for people who do decide that they want to be on the optimization path as opposed to the preservation path. I talked to Hunt about this the other day because we're working on this module where I think that's how we're going to sort of classify the two groups of people. Mm -hmm. You are either living day to day or you're scaling towards the best version of yourself. Those would be the two extremes. I clearly fall on the optimization side of that scale. I don't know if that's a DNA thing. I don't know if it's the type of thing where once you have enough of awareness over the potential to increase the quality of your perspectives that yeah. that just naturally happens. But I think we're the same in that way. And with it comes a certain amount of intensity and at times a certain amount of unrelatability.
0: Yeah, too. And I think that's fair. And, and you know I think it's pretty well regarded to be an EQ thing more so than anything IQ or otherwise DNA structured, just in the sense that um, there are already models like this out there. Like Maslow's hierarchy is a prime example of it where this is self-actualization in a nutshell it's it's the desire to get outside of the realm of the rat race and recognize that we're we're nothing but we're everything all at the same time right like you're gonna die and no one's ever gonna know that you ever even existed somewhere in the future, don't
1: right? get existential on I me. Mean, I'm not. I, I, I'm not going. to. would. Far. I would love to, but,
0: but I'm. I'm not an analyst like that. I don't. I don't necessarily believe like you know we're absolutely nothing or meaningless because I think that that's kind of like giving into a mindset of defeat. Um, I think our purpose and why I say that we're also everything at the same time is we're the most impactful creature on this on this earth, and I think that any one individual has the capacity to spread impact amongst you know a a major society we've already seen this kind of stuff happen like just you know the fact that like zuckerberg created facebook for better or for worse he'll go down in infamy right like that's just something that's going to be impactful from this day forward on society as a whole and we're all capable of things along these lines it's just a matter of developing that purpose and that purpose can't possibly be breached until you go through some sort of self-actualization process where you define to yourself like who am i what are my fears? What are my insecurities? What are the things that I struggle at? What are the things that I excel at? What purpose do I serve to myself, my community around me? And then what greater good can I possibly contribute to?
1: And the last one is the one that I don't think you can actually start to consider until you are out of the first or second level of Maslow's, which is actually the theory of Maslow's hierarchy, which is that the people under the most survival stress don't even have a chance, right? To start to consider existential problems. And right. uh, one of the funniest things I think about existentialism is that it is a luxury to be able to th- have existential terror. <laughs> like it is, it is a luxury <laughs> that's to be an able interesting to, way of putting it. To man. sit around and think like and have time to think about the type of stuff that causes a lot of people that's paranoia. Fair. And I
0: think that's the biggest draw to poker if you're an intellect is that you're not going to be locked up in a lab, you're not going to be locked up in uh, a cubicle somewhere, being a high performer for a company that's going to make billions off your back. Instead, you can kind of like, you know, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to get like too verbose or, or put ourselves on too much of a plat- platform, but we're kind of in a scenario now comparable to like the 14 to 1700s where, you know, really it was just like the smartest people were relished. If you look at guys like Galileo... What was that, the,
1: re- the Renaissance?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it would be around that, that era, right? It was pre-industrial revolution. It was good. It was great. It, but uh, what I'm getting at is, like, you look at people like Galileo, people like, um, uh, like Plato, all these people, they were scientists. They were mathematicians. They were philosophers, right? That's a pretty broad spectrum to be covering as an individual. And the impact that they had moving forward was, was profound. And I think that we're finally getting to a point uh, basically because of the rapid growth of AI and technology as a whole where we're going to we're gonna come full circle and the arts will become the thing that are most relished uh, from the human race as far as like what we can provide, the arts and sciences, right? It's like we will be the interpreter for the sciences cool. and we will be the creators for the art.
1: It's the intersection point of those two that I feel like I was just talking to Matt Hunt about this the other day. He said at first, he's like, I'm looking at the whole picture, specifically in terms of poker, mm-hmm. but branching out into wider performance arenas, like the Aura Ring, yeah. just my body's collecting data right, right. now. Like yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, this is what we he do wants that. to put himself at the intersection point of interpreting the AI into a language that's practical and understandable for humans. And I think the arts is an aspect of that too. Yeah. Everything that we're doing with poker right now at high levels is coming to terms with the fact that the analytical plane clearly needs to be balanced with the intuitive plane mm-hmm. in order to establish a synergy that is of higher logic. Right. In other words, the next most logical paradigm is a combination of what you currently consider the best analytics and mm-hmm. the best intuitive.
0: And that's, that, that is without a shadow of a doubt where problem solving is heading.
1: And we almost need a new word for that level of intelligence because we can't call it analytical and we can't call it intuitive I like to call it logic because I think actually once we get there, we'll look back on the dichotomy of analysis and intuition and say that was an unnecessary distinction.
0: Yeah, I think it's I think what it is, is it's like emotional rationality, if that makes any sense, because effectively what you're talking about is you're marrying the logical mind with the emotional mind and finding optimal solutions uh, where those two intersect. And that's a really big challenging problem that, that we've faced, you know, as a society as a whole, but AI is helping guide us through that because they're far better calibrated the logical side or, mm. or it is far better calibrated the logical side, which now allows us to kind of interpret our emotions uh, in, a, in a much more rational way.
1: So I want to jump in here quickly and just tie this into what I think occurred in the industry after the solver bubble burst. We headed into Oh, a, the solver bubble burst? Twenty fifteen. We headed into a dark age. Okay. If you want to continue with uh, the old fourteen hundreds renaissance sure. metaphor. Yeah, let's do it. I consider twenty fifteen to twenty eighteen to be the dark ages of the poker industry. <laughs> where I, I like we that. completely lost touch with the rational intuitive mind and became imbalanced in the direction of thinking that the analytical plane held all of the answers.
0: Coincidentally enough, you and I started a, a training business around that time.
1: 2015. Yeah. And the thesis of my company was basically, we cannot, it was interesting because we were utilizing a more practical version of the data available, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, which required some intuition to get to. And now I think we're at the next iteration of that process which is, we've sort of gone to the extent of breaking down hand versus range in the form of mass, mass population data I feel like my analytical cup is full. I feel like I almost, for anybody who's aware of our methodology and what we're able to actually do for the online games, it's equivalent to having a map hack in StarCraft. Right, right, yeah. You literally can see what the opponent is doing on average in any line or filter that you want to analyze for. I'm not saying that's always going to give you the right answer, but it's very effective. It's
0: going to give you a confident answer.
1: Where I'm headed now is now that that seems to be that cup seems to be full. I could go further with it, but I'm recognizing that my my intuitive cup has been a little bit neglected. Right. So now I'm very much interested in more projects like um, you saw when I was talking to Chewy over here. Yeah. I want to develop a better relationship with that kid because he's on the very intuitive plane. Yep. Before, I think a lot of people really understand how to quantify it. Maybe it will never actually be able to be quantified in the way that serves as proof. But I think we need to start to validate it if we're going to establish ourselves at that next paradigm that I would say is higher logic, but currently looks like, currently exists as the distinction between analysis and intuition. Yeah. So to double back, uh, because I want to connect the dots with what you were saying before, Uh, in the last recording that we did i posted it to one of my skype groups uh and somebody said uh, i think that the quote that i put next to it was please be diligent enough to do what it takes to get to high stakes so because so, on my instagram i posted that video as like train for grit i yeah. really thought like what we talked about was very gritty yeah, yeah and it was the truth behind the process and what it takes and i posted it and as usual i posted it with words that weren't exactly simple enough for people to understand. It's our weakness. I get it. Clearly. Trust me. And so he said, but what does that mean? Right. I posted the video with my one sentence analysis of what I thought the video meaning was. And he said, but what does that mean? And I said, translation, the upfront pain is going to be less than the regret of not doing it. Yeah. And I think this is the perspective that really needs to get beaten into the industry in the most loving way possible. Right. Quite paradoxical that if you beat someone over the head with the wisdom hammer approach of you got to do the work, otherwise you're going to be in intense suffering. You cannot apply that perspective with too much force before you end up being the coach who's projecting his misery onto the student. It's a very difficult paradox and it's one that I've struggled with along the way, but that's why I said in the last talk, I've come to a point where I'm so open and passionate about having these types of conversations with players who really want to talk about them. But at the moment where we hit the core and I feel like they're not available to the upgrade, that's when I know I got to step off. Yeah, If I I, push past that point.
0: I think it's fair because I think the best way that this is communicated is through empathy to the situation that they're going through because you've been through it. So like I I personally find uh, a a huge response whenever I'm able to connect with a student through uh, my personal failures. Whenever I'm able to say like, look, man, I know what it's like to always feel like you're just holding a bluff catcher and you just have no confidence whatsoever in calling, folding or otherwise, right? You're just on an island. It feels like every spot's a 50-50. Like, yeah, yeah, I feel that way. It's like, okay, I get it. And let me explain to you why this is occurring to you. Here are your voids, right? Now all of a sudden they're open to hearing pretty much everything that encompasses that, that pain and suffering. And it's easy to relate because it's like, we all grew in the same way. What's a challenge is whenever uh, the the gap in knowledge is so great between you as the coach and them as the learner that their pushback is irrational. Still, when they're just solely op- uh, operating from an emotional plane, where you say, "Listen, uh, you can't you can't expect to play these hands from these positions profitably, um, maybe ever, but definitely not in your current skill set." And they push back and say like, well, I saw so-and-so show up with this hand, which was worse. So like clearly, I'm... and you know, it just turns into this big back and forth where they're trying so hard to justify their mistakes, but yet they're in enough pain that they showed up to get coached.
1: It reminds me a lot of what happened when I still coached for a run at once. I made a video. It was one of my final videos and it was an assessment of what I thought was going on that was creating most of the confusion in the community. Yeah. It was something to do, I think I called it context, context mapping. Funny enough, the word that you sure. made up in the, in the version that we did before that we lost the audio. It's a real part. word, it was misapplied. It is a real word. It's an important word because without context, we can't apply methodology in a practical way. What I saw going on with a lot of the training videos being made around the 2016 time, not just on run at once, like I'm not trying to single anybody out. It's, a, it's the effect of high-level coaches putting out content that is then mimicked by lower-level coaches and tried to, in, tried to be interpreted by students. Yep. So you have three things going on. You have the high-level coach making the, the concept video, yep. the lower-level coach trying to mimic the video, yep. and the student trying to make sense it's of how the hell he's telephone. going to interpret all of that. Yeah. And the problem that arises is that the high-level coach is making the high-level concept video from a higher context, right. and because he's operating from a higher context, he's able to navigate nuances of that concept in a way that the lower dimensional players aren't able to. This the lower is division such
0: players. An important thing for people to understand. So
1: let me bring more context to it, so I can use an actual example. When Sauce makes a video about eight six four turn six being a good spot to donk. For the out of position player because the middle card pairs which was the trend that became wildly popular Stoars. around that time Stoars. there's a lot of theoretical back to that and he was intelligent enough and empathetic enough to make a statement and say if you guys don't pay attention to what the specific middle card is that pairs you f- you fail to respect the fact that the range versus range interactions are completely different mm-hmm. for different turn pairing cards why is he able to make that distinction? because he's operating from a higher context. So a video that makes a lot of sense for him to make is suddenly misinterpreted by the lower division player because he's not able to make the type of textural distinctions that a higher level player is able to make. And so we have this this wild misinter- misinterpretation of otherwise very valuable concepts. And then a community that wonders why they're not getting results when they think they're applying those concepts correctly. Right. And even if you remove Sauce from this situation... I, I hate that I always use his name. No, but no, he's no, like no. the guru of that era. You shouldn't use era. Him, though. Like,
0: it, it's, a, it's an ode to how good he is at what he does. But you could use Chris Kruk, too. I think he's one of the best out there making uh, content when it, when we're regarding to the scientific approach to GTO. The problem is that you can remove either one of them, and you could just insert the PO solve, right? Uh, or you could insert their commentary, whatever the case may be. And the issue is the interpretation, as, as you kind of said... When it's all said and done, everybody is trying to look at the exact same complex data, lacking nuance, and determine exactly how this breaks down into a simplistic strategy. There's this kid, Alvin. Uh, I hate to even say his name on air because he's—I uh, don't—I don't know him well enough. All I know is that like he's been on a couple podcasts bashing like myself and Software Y Product. And he's made a couple like PO videos demonstrating like how bad I am at what I what I do, and. His whole premise is that P.O. will give you simple binary strategies to operate street-by-street street effectively. So, like, you know, if you get a range of advantageous board like King4Deuce and P.O. has you C-betting at a high frequency, well, then we can just, like, reduce the size of the bet a little bit and C-bet 100. And, like, this is his groundbreaking uh, interpretation of... Data that he's seen and um, strategy that he's now packaging and selling as, as coaching material. And that is so fucking dangerous because it's stripping away all of the nuance, all of the context, all of the assumptive process that even got us to the point of running the solve to begin with, and just basically saying like, hey, this game's mindless, man. You don't need to think. Look, here's the data. Just get out there. Bet a lot. And whenever you have board textures that aren't great for you, check a lot. And it'll be easy you'll make all the money in the world here let's look at a turn spot after we bet and get called well our opponent should have infinite range so just bet really big now and like breaking it down into those terms for the general populace is so dangerous because it's the low-hanging fruit that they desperately seek right they so desperately want a roadmap to immediate profit that they can just implement through sheer and utter memory that giving them some sort of like clear-cut path of These boards are all uniform and all we have to do is follow this cadence all the time with range and we'll just win. Just stripped away their ability to actually problem
1: solve in real time. Yeah, it could go like six different ways with this and I'm just trying to find out the best. I want to stay on the same track that we're on and I think perhaps the best thing I could say about that is people are out there who are trying to invalidate potentially nuanced strategies or new strategy development by basically slapping a PO solve on it and saying PO does not agree. Typically, I think that is vulnerable. I wouldn't necessarily say dangerous. I'm, I'm guessing you're saying dangerous for the learner.
0: Yeah, because they don't have any other context. They don't know to look deeper.
1: Okay. So I made this announcement. Uh, I, was, I was just talking to somebody on Instagram live on that new feature. And we were talking through one of the main criticisms of the type of strategies that you're advocating which is something that the solver is doing yeah that the human can deviate from if he has a specific intention that he's trying to exploit Mm -hmm. okay so this is happening all the time it's nothing new what i was looking at in this exact scenario was a situation where the solver would respond to a down bet on the flop which sorry guys i was part of that movement that said that we could simplify everything and bet one third range i still stand by it
0: no you could before because there was such an underreaction to the field but if you're studying all these simple solves that say you can see bet one third range well you by god better be studying the inverse of that of what you're supposed to do to combat a one third range
1: or or a one third pot so so that leads me exactly to what occurred in this there are people out there who are so bought into the po solver sim and what it suggests, that they will do anything possible to confirm the current paradigm. Mm -hmm. And what that manifest says is whenever whenever anybody sees a new stylistic upgrade that occurs in the pool because somebody made a video about it and then the pool starts using it, if it stands against the current paradigm, you'll see a video come out that says, you can't do the one third flop C in position because PO solver can check raise at 30% of the time mm-hmm. and scoop an extra 2% pot share. And I said, usually the conversation ends there. But if I were allowed to be a participant in that conversation, I would come in and say, how do you plan on retaining that EV over the next two streets when I have position in stack depth? That's and I'm far said, more studied than you in that line. That's why
0: I said it's dangerous.
1: So Because we're simplifying one decision over a multitude of decision points. And the way that I would like to stamp a label on that type of thinking, the person who tries to invalidate the deviation from the solve in one fell swoop, I would call that one dimensional thinking. Yep. And I think when we start to introduce different dimensions, we start to find higher, higher paradigm solutions to the types of problems that currently exist in the poker market. Perfect example of this. Um, Magnus Carlsen, number one chess player in the world, was quoted as experimenting with suboptimal opening strategies that positioned him at a clear positional deficit Mm -hmm. early in the game in order to funnel the opponent into an unfamiliar line where he could counter them later, middle game, end game, and basically capitalize on... The fact Uh, that they're not as well-versed in those zones. Right.
0: And and this has been my strong premise behind live strategy as long as I've been playing and or teaching, right? It's like the only way we can control volume in the live realm because we're never getting more than 20 hands an hour or 25 hands an hour, whatever the case may be. And you're only ever going to be able to one table. So the only way you can truly control volume is to find a way to insert yourself in more pots than the next guy. And that's where the big fail comes into play when it comes to uh, GTO application in in live senses. Because we're trying to simplify this massively complex game tree and keep ourselves out of difficult spots, it handcuffs us. It reduces us to the amount of hands we're able to play from certain positions. It reduces our actions down to uh, very binary ones where calling is largely uh, kind of shunned before the flop and things along those lines. So what it ultimately manifests as is You don't get to insert yourself often, but when you do, you get to do so aggressively. And that's a great premise for a strategy, but you're gonna need 10 lifetimes to actually realize the EV of all that and, and demonstrate the bottom line. If you're willing to give a little, give a little bit of action pre, just recognizing that nobody's responding correctly anyway, that they're still over folding ranges because the solve doesn't allow them to call as much, or they aren't taking advantage of the fact that you're too wide from this scenario by over three betting because that would be a deviation. Um, what you'll find yourself in is some slight complex situations where you have more hands than you should. But if you're studied, you're more trusted in that arena than your opposition, who's now off into
1: another island of the game tree that's uncovered. We need to go into this because it's very important to not create a dangerous outcome for the listener that we dissect the parts of this that really need to be given attention. Yeah. So let's do it. What you're saying basically is let's first introduce like the textbook media example of this, which is like Howard Letterer walking over to the Poker After Dark camera and saying, "This Phil Ivy guy, like he could show up with any hand at any time." Right. And and what like so basically he's saying Phil Ivy can show up with seven deuce, which makes Phil Ivy harder to play. Right. When I first heard that, I was like, God damn. Ivy is some sort of monster if he's able to make 7-3 profitable. Yeah, Realistically, that's a very silly statement. Right. On the surface. Correct. Because anybody who's playing enough hands that they can show up with anything at any given time is a fucking fish. Yeah. On the surface, what makes you good when you're playing well, and I know this is something I call you out about when you tell me that you potentially aren't sure about your play. The thing I always say to you is, Matt, do you think that you have a handle on how your aggression is currently perceived before you play that spot. And I'm saying this as a premise because it's the main thing that we started to realize we needed to address because newsflash, the most profitable strategies are over aggressive strategies. Right, for For sure. For the market, it's proven, check the data out, we're in an imbalanced market that trends towards passivity. It would be a beautiful thing if we could execute a vacuum strategy that capitalized all day long on the passivity of the market. Now, the problem is that when it's no longer one-dimensional, when your opponents have thinking minds and they know that you're Matt Berkey and you're putting the heat on, there is something that happens that needs to be addressed. Your sustainability of an exploitative strategy drops if the player is going to make an intelligent counter what you're very good at when you're playing well is anticipating when that player is ready to counter you and then you flip to a more conservative strategy while still executing aggressively versus other players at the table who haven't countered you yet that is a very very hard thing to balance i agree when done properly it is the most incentivized approach yeah now when you're playing in environments where let's just take the environments that i'm most familiar with in terms of training like semi-anonymous environments like Bovada Ignition. Mm -hmm. A situation where you might be playing 50 to 100 hands with someone and they still have a HUD so they can see if you start running 50, 35. Right. Once you start running fish stats, any observant reg is going to be able to exploit you as though you're a fish and he would be correct to do so because your frequencies are just out of control. Yep. So we need to introduce the dimension of resilience, which is the ability to sustain an exploitable strategy over time. If we don't do that, we run the risk of telling people to go in and splash it up for amounts of time that would leave them vulnerable to counters. In in an example like Bavada, a scenario where you're only playing 50 to 100 hands, there is a balance you can strike where you can play more aggressive than you could if you were sitting down with the same guys every day. Mm -hmm. Because at the beginning, it's completely anonymous until they have some sort of tracked volume on you. But we still need to acknowledge that 50 hands into that session, we better not be running 50, 35 stats and expect to pull off an insanely profitable river bluff because we're going to be perceived as a fish. So why I wanted to break this down was this dimension of resilience, which is a word that I guess we kind of created in my stable to try to explain this phenomenon, that the vacuum strategy cannot be executed over a certain amount of time and expected to have the same results. We're dealing with real human opponents who have minds and are trying to fight back. So the balance, I think, which needs to be struck, is to have enough self-awareness to either play a more balanced strategy. I'm okay with using that word there. To play a more conservative strategy that gears closer to balance. Or the alternative is to do what I think you usually do in a live environment, which is try to play the meta game with every single player at the table to capitalize on maximum edge at every single time. Yeah. And that is the strategy that I would never advocate for someone who's not as seasoned as you.
0: Totally agree with you.
1: Uh, Where I want
0: to bring this is into the live realm because I think it's most applicable. So the big thing that you keyed in on here is time, right? And in the online arena, time goes by very quickly. Data adds up very fast and you're exposed very quickly. In the live arena, there is so much white noise taking place and people check in and out so rapidly and are so self-absorbed with what's happening to them in the moment, what hand distribution they're being dealt, who's winning, why they're losing, why they're winning, whatever the case may be, that the psychological is far more interesting to me as far as developing a strategy to exploit than the actual... Uh, you know, distribution of cards or positioning at the table or, or, or table dynamics as a whole, it effectively freezes time. So despite the fact that you can have a relatively transparent, exploitative strategy, one where the counter may even be obvious to your opposition, it's very hard for them to be in a mindset that is strategic enough for them to actually capitalize on. And that's why, to your point, I feel like I'm very skilled at being able to play the meta with everybody because it's not that challenging to know where someone's at in that current moment, whether or not they're willing to put themselves out on a limb and run a really volatile bluff line against you because it should work for you. It's not that challenging, right. And this right, is right. again, so the this important. isn't, this, this doesn't, this doesn't, uh, this doesn't lend well to be transposed through teaching, right? This isn't a skill set that I can necessarily teach. What What I would offer uh, students or whatever the case may be, as far as people who are listening and wanna try to get better at these types of things, is learn the balanced approach first. I'll never deviate off of that, right? I'll never be one to say, you shouldn't know what the, the proper frequencies are here. You shouldn't know what the proper opening hand ranges are from each position, what three bet frequencies are. You absolutely should. But whenever you want to try to scale to high stakes, And you want to get out of the 2-5 paradigm. Whenever you feel like you've hit a plateau with all of your basic knowledge, all of your mechanical knowledge, all of the the shallow sims that you've run, now it's time to start examining the meta, the psychology, the, the ability to increase your volume of profitable hands.
1: I don't think there's any question that we need to be playing more balanced as we start to insert ourselves into environments with better, more observant opponents. Agreed. The only thing in question is how imbalanced should we get when the market is not observing? Or right. when the market refuses to adjust would be a better way to put right. it. Right,
0: and honestly, we can, we can actually quantify this to, uh, rather than talking about diff- different environments because that's a little vague in general, we can actually quantify this to one very specific street in poker in all environments, and that's the river. At the river, every single live environment you've ever played in, on some sort of spectrum, is imbalanced. And people are just far too passive on this street as a whole. They're not calling enough. They're not betting enough. They're not bluffing enough for sure. And it results in two very nutted, imbalanced ranges arriving on this one particular street, trying to battle it out.
1: Let's talk about the not calling enough because I think it's the most consistent across the board. And I think it creates the best context for the mindset dimension, which is causing it. We touched on that last time. Um, what I think is so interesting about your ability to navigate the meta with more than one player at a time is that it requires you to be operating from a balanced mindset. The reason that you can't tell somebody else to play differently versus this guy than you do versus this guy and to keep track of all that in the moment Mm. is because if someone has distortions in their mindset, and we can get into this too, I think it ultimately comes down to how much stress are you under on the day-to-day or what portion of maslow's hierarchy are you currently operating from right. because if you have unresolved mental issues you will not perceive information accurately you're going to perceive it distorted mm-hmm. and if that's occurring good luck trying to teach someone how to gauge meta so part of your strength i think relies on you taking your mindset very seriously and while you may have overarching heuristics like well, the river is a universally overfolded street. You're also more sensitive to when someone might be reacting to your putting pressure on them or putting too much pressure on them, which gives you the leg up and being able to calibrate faster than someone else might be able to who doesn't have the sensitivity or the mindset balance. Yeah, Like I've played you. You're not an easy person to play. And usually I get caught on the ass end of the usually like we did poker out loud so yeah, like, yeah. people can go watch this but sure um, there were a couple hands where my justification for semi-bluffing all in against you is that Berkey just cannot control his frequencies and there's no way that my hand is not good enough mm-hmm. to bluff and that is actually I believe that statement to be true if you gauge it in the aggregate But what you're very good at is showing up at the moment when you think someone is going to perceive you wide and you're narrow. Because the way I think about it is
0: uh, I control my frequencies by player. So against somebody who I think is going to fight hard against me, I'll be much more imbalanced towards value. Against somebody who I think is going to lay down to me, I'll be much more imbalanced towards bluff. And across the aggregate, I think I'm thinking in a scope of... uh, basically, I'm running good, clean lines here.
1: I'm just weighted more one way than the other, but there's really no way for them to see through Which that. is really why it's not useful for you to tell somebody, hey, guys, I play these stats. Fair. Because you're not playing those stats. That's not a consistent strategy for you. Right. You're playing a version... you're playing a different version of your system versus every opponent and if we wanted to add up all the hands it would convert to these stats but that's not a standardized system for you at all
0: right and I think it's why uh, I mean you know I've spoken a lot with this to Matt Hunt too and I think it's like why we're so proud of like what we've developed for the MTT uh, strategy as a whole because tournaments more so than anything else embody this need to be dynamic Right? cash games are, are, are rather static in nature the blinds are going to stay the same the entire time people are going to come in and out but like you're going to be in fixed positions stack depths are always going to be relatively deep 100 plus blinds whatever the case may be right but in a tournament it's forever chaotic it's always shifting you're you're chip leading you're below average stack your average stack all these things are changing you're you're being shuffled around tables profiles are changing you're only playing 10 hands with some people you're playing hundreds with others Uh, And all of this is all taking place within the constructs of a structure that is rapidly increasing in pressure, be it the payout structure or the actual tournament structure itself. So this concept of what the fuck do I need to be consistent for, all I need to be consistent to is the actual structure that I'm battling against, right? The way we analyze it isn't from a strategy standpoint of these are what your ranges should look like, solidify them, create that baseline, and then just deviate ever so slightly based on dynamics. It's the opposite, right? It's this is what
1: your dynamic approach should be given the juncture of the variables. So would you say most of your methodology is geared towards exploiting the structure of the tournament? 100%.
0: Okay. It's or at least exploiting the, the uh, thoughtlessness that the field has towards the structure, right? They just read and react. They go in there with a game plan of I'm going to raise and take it. I'm going to raise and see bet uh, until I can't any longer. Then I'm going to reshove until I can raise and see bet again. And whenever I have all the chips, I'm just going to do it more frequently, and it's, it's honestly that simple. Like, that's literally what they have it distilled down to. And now that P.O. is heavily involved and incentivized, I think it's getting a little bit crisper, where they're like, I'm going to raise and take it with these hands from these positions. And I'm going to use these hands as three bets, both bluff and value. And they're going a little bit deeper into it, and that's great. That'll ensure that they're not
1: losing uh, any chip EV, but it's not going to ensure them to be there with eight left. And I... That's the thing that I think needs to connect the final dot between the mindset dimension and the technical dimension. I mentioned last time that you could do a cool thought problem, which we sort of stumbled across in uh, our company, which is we give players the same resources, Mm -hmm. and we watch them perform very differently. Sure. Now, what we did with data was we tried to provide a structure that if you were able to comprehend it, let's just say integrate it, And we could even get really gritty and say, what does it mean to integrate? Well, it doesn't mean to memorize. We found that out the hard way because the guys who aren't performing are the guys that are staring at grid work. And our grid work is different than PO solver. We use PO and we distill the population down to their imbalances. And we show where the lines are imbalanced on grids, but it's not like staring at a solve. I would say your grids are the equivalent of a
0: live player's observations. Yours are just much more accurate because there's a pile of data to back it okay, up. Okay,
1: let's go with that because I think it works. So we have the ability to stare at quantifiable tells. This would be like the metaphor that I would yeah, use for no, like like comparing that. the online data that we have to yep. what a very intuitive live player is doing. Mm-hmm. We have the map hack. On average, we can tell you what to do. If you can tell us who the profile is and what the line, filter, bet sizing, all yep. Of that. yep, yep. Now, the issue is that when you tell a player that there's a map hack, he goes and stares way too narrowly at the map. And when I say narrowly, I mean he literally believes that if he could memorize the exact picture of the map and one frame, that that is going to suffice when he goes into the arena of performance. And what we find over and over again is that it is the the actual breakdown in performance caused by the inability to rationally interpret a frozen frame of data that actually ends up causing the type of tilt that we see or the performance deficiencies that we see. So what's the solution? Well, we have to start to reintegrate the intuitive plane into a data-oriented approach. Or we have to at least acknowledge that, if you wanna call rational thought, intuitive, it can't just be staring at the answer. Well, effectively, what you're saying is you have to reintroduce problem solving. Because there is no actual answer. Like, right. Yes, the, that's the, so the, critical. The, the complex... Okay, so let's, let's actually explain that. The landscape of poker is so complex that you will almost never be put in the exact situation twice. Right. Post-flop, at least. Yep. So it does not make sense for you to stare at a single frozen frame and say, well, if I could just memorize the solution to this problem, I could perform because now you're putting yourself on a path to memorize a billion solutions before you can perform. And this is the problem we saw arising with PO solver in the mixed strategy kingdom, is that unless you literally want to memorize every single solve and the frequency at which you're supposed to play every mixed strategy, good luck having confidence in game. Right. So I I want to talk further about this because I think there's a lot of freedom in this statement.
0: Um, First of all, I think that what you're saying by reintroducing rational thought or uh, in- intuition in some capacity is really just saying we have to reintroduce the problem-solving mechanism. You can't possibly spend all of your time studying data without any sort of interpretive process.
1: And I think the problem is that people have jumped into data thinking that that is the rational problem-solving domain. Mm-hmm. Like, like, let's, let's actually clear this up because this is important. The people who have a strong allegiance to data or analytics are coming from a belief that that is all that is needed to think rationally not true right we need to reincorporate the ability to calibrate which is really what i would call the problem solving mind for sure uh i I just want to touch touch on this really
0: quickly because i think it's very relevant so in december i put out a tweet storm of uh, where I think the community is getting it wrong in their analysis between exploitative thinking and game theory optimal thinking or application or, or both, right? And I ended it with, in short, those who are rigorously testing hypotheses and distilling answers into practical strategies will be most equipped to evolve. Those who are intuitively calibrating their environments as students of human nature will be the best suited to survive. The ones doing both will be the ones who conquer. And I think that there's something really profound in that because, yes, those who are taking uh, data analysis to the extremes are going to be the ones to to set the standard, right? They are going to evolve the game for sure. We already see it happening. Big blinds are being defended more than they used to in the past. Buttons are being opened more frequently than they used to be. Three bets are getting more aggressive, right? That's the evolution of poker. The mimicking effect will allow that to happen. But what's what's the upside to being one of those people, like being isolated in that chamber? You're not trailblazing anything because you're not developing new strategies, right? You're just calibrating old ones better. And you're teaching the field collectively how to lose less EV on the whole, right? My follow-up to that was then those who are relying on uh, intuition to dissect their environment... And calibrate based on individuals that they play against will be left to or or will be the ones to survive and the reason i'm saying that is because yes those who are using data will evolve the game but those who are intuitive in nature and uh i think we're going to jump into this next somebody like Bryn kenny who's thrust into the most competitive environment in the world but doesn't study the data one-on-one, right? Instead, he studies it second-handedly from world-class players who he's surrounded by that he's forced to compete against. And they're the only people he needs to calibrate against because he's never playing against anyone else. So what he does is he studies his environment intently, and he distills it down to applicable counter-strategies that he thinks will work in areas that he feels he's poked holes in or portions of the game tree that that he feels that they're unconfident in, right? So he will be the type to survive. And maybe he's not the right example because he might be a better example of the third. But somebody who's willing to do both, who's willing to sit down and take a look at all of the data, distill it down into workable baseline strategies, and then just say, that's not going to cut it in the games that I play. There's way more money to be made if I can just move off of this. But it's great to know what my opposition is doing. They're the ones who will thrive.
1: I think he's a good example I think it's a fine example to talk about because I think what he's doing is very skilled. He is conserving his mental energy and channeling it in the direction of the incentives in front of his face. Mm -hmm. Somebody who says, I'll learn everything I need to know about the solves based on how my opponents react or construct their strategies. You could poke holes in that. Sure. Sure. You could say he's not going to be as thoroughly solved, but you could also say that he's also going to know the best Avenues for responding to players who are using solver esque strategies. Mm. So, who's smarter? The guy who stares at PO solver for 12 hours a day in all of these abstract zones that he may never even encounter, let alone be able to memorize them, right. or the guy who concentrates his study towards the most relevant, impactful points of the tree that he sees regularly. Because he's determined that those are the spots that are worth studying. Because he's watching the opponents and what hands they're turning over and what lines they're in. Right. That's very intelligent to me. That's simple. That's that's following simple market incentives.
0: Yeah. So I want to bring this full circle because I think that this hammers out a a really big point. Do you think that's do Do you think somebody like Bryn is teachable? So in this interview, we hear him basically say, um, "You know, he's been through." it. He's been through the thick of all of it, right? He's gone on seven-figure upswings and then owed a million dollars. He's put himself in a position to now compete in the most competitive arena on earth. He's now the number one uh, most winning tournament player of all time. And that ascent happened effectively over a four-year span. Uh, With all of that said, he openly says, I don't study solvers. I don't talk poker with anybody I do all of this internally, I study my environment, I watch hours and hours of tape, and I pull out what I need to know from what they're doing. Do you think that's teachable or scalable to our audience as a whole?
1: I believe it's teachable to the degree that he can distill his methodology into trainable patterns. And now here's the important part that I feel like needs to get talked about. If you never use data, it is nearly impossible and wildly arrogant of you to claim that every single aspect of your methodology is correct. So let's just play this game out. Bryn creates a training course. Yep. He tries to give solutions to as many points in the game as he can map. Mm -hmm. So it's gonna be a very wide array of spots and concepts and patterns and nuances and deviations. Bryn has the credibility to do that, assuming his results aren't luck, which would be wildly assumptive to say with his current results in the sample he's put in. He may have run above average, but like, let's just assume he's one of the best tournament players in the world. Sure. Okay? Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He creates this course, and now his course has aspects within it, micro-concepts that he advocates are the right way to play. Bryn does not have credibility to teach every single one of those concepts as if they are a law just because Bryn is the best player in the world. Totally agree. Bryn needs data to determine what portions of his methodology are actually data-poor perspectives. Yep. Otherwise, what stands to happen is Bryn is teaching poor methodology to players who are trusting him because he has macro results without actually putting in the diligence of the solver work or the data work to expose what parts of his strategy could be upgraded. Yep. So that's the, that would be my only objection to somebody who doesn't use data creating an extensive course is that just because you have perfect number one results does not give you credibility to map every portion of the game tree as though you have no mistakes.
0: Right, and I think the same holds true for those using data, right? Like they're still blinded by their own biases, by their own assumptions, and by the limited scope of the tree that they've actually dissected.
1: And the most important thing is that when we reach a point where we don't have the ability to quantify it, is that we say, I don't know. Yeah. And I think if Bryn made a course, there would have to be a lot of gaps in it where he says, I don't know. Agreed. In the same way where we don't filter for certain lines with data. We don't have sample size for it. I don't know. Right. That has to be the most important thing that comes out of a coach's mouth. Here's here's where I do think
0: that uh, somebody like Bryn is more scalable than may meets the eye, right? I think it's easy to just dismiss him as an outlier. and just say like, oh, he just beats to the, he marches to the beat of his own drum and he's just that intelligent and observant that he's able to make it work. There's part of that that's true. But here's where I think that this actually does scale to the entire community as a whole. And the problem that I hope that we're trying to address. The beauty of what he does is that it's all macro-based, right, he's not digging in the weeds trying to find that minutia of equity or EV that the field is leaving behind. Instead, it's all this gigantic umbrella macro approach where it's, I'm observant and I'm paying attention to the strategic trends that are taking place because these other grunts are doing all of the data-driven work necessary and then just divulging their strategy openly because they can't help but talk amongst themselves. They can't help but uh, continually... Do the same repetitive things at the table right they' they 're mixing i 'm sure whatever the case may be, but whatever it is, he gets to play against forty of them at a time, and collectively as a whole, patterns emerge right, and he has hours hundreds of hours of videotape to see what what is emerging and what the evolutionary process is so that 's when we 're talking about the absolute upper echelon realm let's let 's bring this all the way back let's let 's connect with the users here a little bit and and, and scale it way back. Bryn is who he is because he got to a point of being able to conceptualize the game range versus range, and then distill it down to strategic approach of hand versus range, right? And to better quantify what that means to the listener, effectively, he's able to conceptually understand that in any given line work, he himself should have range A, and his opponent should have range B. And with every action that takes place, it should be range A minus some amount of hands and range B minus some amount of hands uh, throughout the course until we land on the river. And then one of those ranges becomes polarized, one of them becomes merged and bluff catching, and you know you, you just proceed from there, right? For most who are listening to this podcast, they're going to be operating from a paradigm of only thinking about their own hand, or only thinking about their own hand versus their opponent's hand, or or effectively the board, right? So we say hand versus hand comparison, but it's really hand versus monsters under the bed comparison. Mm, Nice. Where, you know, you have aces and the board texture is 10, 8, deuce, two spades. And now all you're considering to yourself is, well, I lose to 10, 8, I lose to 10s, I lose to 8s, I lose to deuces. He could have 7, 9, he could have jack, 9, he could have queen, jack for a gut shot, right? And that's, that's the evolution of hand versus hand thinking. And sometimes there's some illogical thought there because, you know, it may be a board texture like 10-3-deuce. And suddenly you'll be saying like, uh, well, he could have 4-5. And it's like, well, maybe your opponent doesn't ever really even have 4-5. And then maybe you start to overlook that he could have like ace-deuce, ace-3, ace-4, ace-5, whatever. Whole point I'm trying to make is that if we zoom out and we try to strategically approach this from a holistic standpoint, whenever we're in the hand comparison realm, right? Thinking about our own hands, thinking about uh, our hand versus our opponent's hand. We can still do and apply a lot of the methodology that somebody as elite as Bryn is applying in these elite paradigms. It just has to be quantified in uh, some baseline heuristics. Cool. Of Of, you know, basically being able
1: to understand equities. So here is the paradox of Poker training, in my opinion, and I'm happy that you brought the word heuristic up because it's the most formidable way to distill information to train a pl- a player how to execute on a pattern. Right. Realistically, everything revolves around patterns mm-hmm. because the landscape again is complex enough that if we don't distill it down to certain patterns, there's no context with with within which we can train it. Mm-hmm. So if we start from the premise that we need to create a pattern, and then we also work from the premise that we wanna use data to distill the best heuristics for the patterns that we're trying to capitalize on, then the problem that arises with the learner is that he's demanding an exact answer. He's demanding a specific metric or heuristic. Yep. And if we don't give him that exactly, if we give him something looser that says, it's somewhere in between this range and you're going to have to use rational thought to calibrate on the fly. Well, then he demands that it's not exact enough. Right. Now, if we go the other direction, we, we give them a loose metric because there's some guys who really want to have autonomy and freedom in the learning process. They really want to be the player who says, I want to be able to choose based on whatever I'm feeling in the moment, how I apply a version of this system. Mm -hmm. Well, now that guy is highly susceptible to his own biases, which is why we usually don't advocate that a new player just fly by the seat of his pants and not follow any metrics. So again, this paradox is that too exact of an answer kills the rational thought muscle. They no longer have to think for themselves and they think they can just apply frozen frames of problems and solutions onto real-time performance. Right. That's not how it works. Yet, if we, if we give them a looser model and we say, think for yourself, they demand the exact approach.
0: Because well, only the independent mind is going to be able to excel there. And by nature, most people are just dependent.
1: So what you see arising is the defense mechanism of the student, which isn't able to accept the fact that this is going to require some independent thinking from him people go in wanting the magic pill right you give them the magic pill they say i want freedom right i want to be able to play my own style you tell them okay go off and play your own style they say i thought you were going to give me an exact system right so
0: i personally have a a fix for this i'd love to hear like how you've approached this before i dive in
1: um i no longer train players who don't acknowledge that they're going to have to think for themselves okay or 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 they will fail
0: out naturally yeah i think that's very uh that's a luxury Right, I don't think most people...
1: Well, no, no, I don't think it's a luxury. I think it's an inevitability. And we can talk about this in, in a very okay, delicate fair. way. I do believe that there is a portion of people out there who are currently suffering from not having proper tools. Yeah. And who would excel if they just had a streamlined path. So do I, but I think it's a very small portion. of Me too. And yeah. I am basically, I'm becoming quicker at filtering out the process of who wants the magic pill and right. who's capable of thinking independently or at least available to the right. the idea that so they're I, going to have So I think to.
0: there's a massive group in between.
1: I think there's a massive group that acknowledges
0: there's no, ma- there's no magic pill. But also acknowledges that um, they either are not capable of thinking independently yet or maybe ever. But still have a love and passion for this game and a desire to learn. So there's still a mechanical element uh, to the learning process. And I think that, basically, I have a lot of faith in humanity and and in our intelligence. Me too.
1: Maybe too much.
0: Possibly. So I guess what I'm arriving at is, uh, I think that this large subset that is willing to forego the magic pill, but is also kind of acknowledging, like, I'm not an independent thinker yet, or at all, um, maybe just doesn't know what their untapped potential is. And my approach to this, and how I personally think that, like, we get out of the the monsters under the bed syndrome and into strategic problem solving is to take the approach of let's let's not fast track it, right? Let's keep it in a hand versus hand type of thinking or a hand versus hands kind of, of thinking, right? Where same board texture, 10-8-3 or 10-8-deuce, whatever I said, rainbow, right? Now, the way that we want to approach this and, and sort of filter them into... Uh, a bigger picture mindset and the ability to problem solve from a wider scope is uh, this is a silly trick, but basically I say like treat your entire range as a bluff. You have no hands that are value, right? Everything is a bluff. And the reason why I say it this way is because there's an emotional attachment to value and value changes throughout the course of, Hmm. of, of textures, right? So if you have aces on 10-8 deuce and you're like, I have value, this is the nuts. Or hell, I'll give you pocket 10s. You have pocket 10s on 10-8 deuce, right? This is it. This this is the dream. All you're thinking about is how am I going to get stacks in? How am I going to get three streets from here? You know, what, what do I have to do to make all the money here? And you're never thinking about like, what can my opponent have? What could he respond with? Whatever, right? So you bet and he calls. Now the turn is a seven. You're like, eh, not great. Doesn't hurt me that bad though. You know, only jack nine gets there. I'm still pretty nutted. He checks, you bet again, and he calls. It's like, okay, great, we're in good shape here. River Jack, all nines are a one-liner now, and he bets. And you're, you're just suddenly in this, and he bets big, he bets all in for pot, right? And now all of a sudden, you're just in this weird space where it's like, what just happened? I had the nuts, now I don't have the nuts, and your emotions are gonna dictate how you respond to this, right? You're either gonna punt it off and... Always call off because you just don't get hands this good in poker that often. And you, you don't have time for rational decision making. You had a set of 10s. You still have a set of 10s. You're not folding a set of 10s. That's just our golden rule. Or you're the other way. and You're super conservative. And you're just like, I can't believe how fucking unlucky I am. This happens to me all the time. You show your neighbor the hand. You fired in the muck. And I promise you, both of those, those paradigms are operating at 100% failure rate. The guy who always calls is never being bluffed. The guy that always folds is being bluffed almost 100% of the time. Over a
1: large enough sample, they will inevitably fail.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess what I'm trying to say is when we start with this concept of just treat everything as a bluff, what it allows us to do then is begin to examine at least from a, a potential range element, right? So what, what we try to train into then is, okay, you have a decision now when check to. Are you going to bet
1: or are you going to check? And if you decide that you're going to bet. So you're almost playing napkins in this, in this game. Uh, effectively, okay. yeah. Right? And you're doing that to develop a, a certain mindset approach that's going to let them what, read what the I'm rage. trying, Yeah, the
0: mindset I'm trying to train them into
1: is a predictive one.
0: Okay. Where you never bet and are then caught off guard by the response.
1: So everything that I really am passionate about right now is about structurally distilling what's actually going on in the mindset department mm-hmm. of a hand. And if I had to take what you just said, and give the structural performance law that I think you're alluding to. Yeah. By training someone not to look at the value of their hand when it's the nuts, especially on the flop, what you're doing is preventing them from going down a rabbit hole that crystallizes into a high level of certainty That they're going to win the hand. Right. Only to be caught off guard by the on the river 100%. by a flip in board texture, mm-hmm. which now shifts the equities a ton, which now they will lose the hand at a very high rate. Which and most
0: s- most importantly is predictable.
1: Is predictable and inevitable if yeah. you understand the structural model that you're investing into. Yes. There are five cards that are going to come, I think, right? So re- realistically, what I'm so passionate about is These performance laws, it's something I'm working with Matt Hunt on Mm -hmm. uh, diligently right now. And one of the laws that I've come up with is that if we start from the premise that cognitive dissonance is the root of all distortion in a hand, meaning all of the mistakes that you make, assuming that you knew the answer before the hand, tilt is caused by cognitive dissonance. It is the experience of uncertainty Occurring to the mind that implies a certain sense that lack is occurring, could occur, or has occurred mm-hmm. during that hand. When that fight-or-flight response, which you could also refer to cognitive dissonance as, kicks in, distortion occurs. We have to accept this if we're going to move past that point. We could dismantle that more in part of that module that I'm... Trying to create is to really create proper language around this because i think the language is so important some people relate to fight or flight some people know what cognitive dissonance is some people like the word distortion if you're stressed you're not going to make the best decision sure we have to start from that premise yep and if we can reverse engineer how to put someone in a in a low level of cognitive dissonance if we can figure out how to get you out of fight or flight we can potentially correct a lot of performance deficiencies in one fell swoop because in a lot of cases, you already know the right answer. Yeah, This is like one of the favorite pieces of content I ever did. I told you like, we put this Instagram video out that said, you're already good at poker. You just have to stop telling yourself that you're not. Yeah, This is the heart of it really. And it's much more, it's kind of woo woo in it's a sense. It's not though. But it's also. It's, like, not,
0: it's, a, it's a fundamental understanding of the limbic system as opposed to the thank prefrontal you. cortex thank you. And, and the separation between the two. They
1: don't interlock well. You you asked earlier, like, what is the purpose that a coach must come to or find in order to feel like he's doing something worthwhile mm -hmm. instead of just going off and playing? Why would we coach if we were able to perform? For me, it's a passion for being able to create the first real bridge between the vibrational law of attraction genre and the structural wisdom side of what's actually going on. I want, to put, I want to be at the intersection of that movement because it didn't work for me to hear people talk in Law of Attraction. I don't like it much. It's it's I bullshitty. It, I think it's bullshitty, and yeah. in a lot of ways, it's a cop-out yep. for having a more high-resolution understanding of what's actually going on in front of our faces, and I was disappointed with the tools that were available to me at the time when I was trying to improve performance, and now I feel like we are on the verge of really starting to discover what it is about the experience of performance stress yeah. that is causing people to behave irrationally. And I'm all in on creating as much content as I can to try to contextualize that.
0: I got a, I got a nice two hour webinar for you to watch that I, uh, I've i done. For free? Yeah, well, nice. you for free. Anybody watching, <laughs> you're gonna have to sign up for that free trial. Um, yeah, I mean, just the last point that I wanna make on this is that I think a lot of what you just spoke to as far as training out cognitive dissonance is being able to avoid the uh, tapping into the limbic system. And, and you know, I can go on a, a long tirade about this. I literally did a two hour webinar on it, no joke. But basically the way to stay in rational thought and remain logical and not allow your emotions to, to, to plague you is A, to train out the idea of attachment in any sort of capacity, be it nuts or air. Um, but then B, be uh, operating in a predictive paradigm where you recognize that all outcomes are available and you already have a response for whichever one occurs. So don't bet unless you understand how you're gonna handle a check raise, how you're gonna handle a check call, and stop analyzing the the best case scenario because the
1: hand ends. Who cares what happens when they fold? It's unimportant. Well, analyzing, this is paradoxical too, but analyzing the best case scenario is the same thing as you preparing for the worst. It's a very strange thing. If you're focused on how this hand needs to play out so that you don't end up losing the hand, Mm -hmm. then suddenly all of your attention and analysis is diverted or channeled off into a place that leaves you completely vulnerable to what needs to be decided if it doesn't go your way. Right. The thing that I was talking about, uh, about Magnus Carlsen, number one in chess, he started doing these streams. For those of you who don't even play chess, I recommend you watch these streams. You can find them on YouTube. They're free. He sits down and he plays online with players who are much worse than him. It's like a free roll type thing. And specifically, what is most powerful about these streams is his level of responsiveness to any act that the opponent throws his way, any action or move. He never budges from the conviction that there's nothing that could happen that's going to stop him from winning this game.
0: Well, to be fair, uh, that's fantastic, but the parallels aren't exactly one-to-one. Because there's variance in poker,
1: and you're not always going to win Correct. So here's where I'm going with this. For sure. The most powerful place... A poker player could get to in terms of perspectives is to see that if you can solve the dimension of variance meaning if you can distill variance down in your head to say variance cannot affect me if i put enough volume in and play my a game then yes that takes a million hands to map out but if you can get to that macro perspective and embody it as a vibrational truth in your system. Yeah. That, you now have the same conviction as the chess player who's playing a game where there's no variance. And, so,
0: and for the live person, I think it's very important to understand that you won't reach those million hands. So you have to approach it from a different uh, level. Your mental health is a thousand times more important than that of an online If you're a live pro.
1: player who's not going to put in a large sample, you need a little bit of faith, I would say. Yeah. Or a higher win rate. You could do it that way, too.
0: Well, the the thing is, the higher win rate is available, right? It's way more available live than it, than it is in most online spectrums. Like, maybe even 3 to 5x is, is available. But also, on top of that, I agree, faith, it, it goes a long way, but just having a, a, a healthy mental understanding of risk, right? Because this is no different than the, than the uh, stock traders or people who are operating on the business side of things, venture capitalists and things like that. They'll never reach the, the long-term EV of each decision that they're making, but they're constantly calibrating, right? They're constantly refining the process so that they are more selective and more precise at the decisions that they're making, trusting deep down inside that they just aren't wrong and when they're wrong that's fine it's a learning experience they move on from it and you have to you have to approach poker the same way i've been having this conversation a lot lately and i think it's very critical to get across to everybody is we have to train out of the concept of right and wrong right we have to train out of the concept of wins and losses and we have to train more so into the concept of does this fall under strategically incentivized
1: right is this plus ev or not yeah. and let's not gauge it by the outcome of this hand because this is the worst profession to do that in right the literal worst
0: yeah we're the fee- dealing
1: the feedback loops are just atrocious even whenever you go into the
0: training realm right uh this happens very frequently where uh, there's some sort of power dynamic between myself and a student right they look up to me or they trust everything that i have to say empirically and they'll come to me with a hand and i'll just tear it apart and it's I- i'm just dissecting it root cause on Where it's like, okay, here's fundamentally where you failed. Here's mechanically where you failed. And this is, uh, you know, well without, and these are the parts that were outside of your control, right? Now the outcome might be the same, even if you succeed in all these things and that's where you lose them, right? It's like, well, then what the fuck am I paying you for?
1: You're giving me all the right tools and I still am
0: not guaranteed to win the hand. Right. And now it becomes this level of vulnerability where it's every time they bring you a hand, they expect negative feedback and they're not hearing the actual context of it all where it's, No, no, no. Listen, here's what you did very well on a macro level. Here's what you did very poorly on a micro level, or vice versa. But this outcome was inevitable. Like, your opponent played strategically well, and two hands just came up. Like, you know, it's the worst whenever you just hear, like, uh, some inevitability. Like, oh, I had queens and I ran into kings, and we were 50 blinds deep. Like, do you think I should stack off there? It's like, do you care? Like yes, of course. You you had a very reasonable hand. If you're not stacking this hand, what what are you choosing to stack?
1: It's like I need a better question. Yeah, it's like what I hear when I hear that question, with all the love of my heart, what I actually hear is I am so traumatized yeah. that I cannot even execute on the thing that I know to be correct. Right. And that's a dangerous that's a dangerous Right. Place. What I
0: need to hear is do you think I should have four bet induced or
1: just four bet shove? I'm all about better questions. And what I'm hearing mostly from this last part of your talk is we need to focus on controllable factors. My real passion right now. Or maybe
0: defining the uncontrollable ones.
1: Same thing perspectives. Fair. Perspectives that's fair. that actually paint a clear picture of the structure of the investment model that we have opted to head into as professional poker players. Yep. My whole thing right now is that this profession is more stressful than it needs to be for 99% of people. The, the main reason that I think that's true is because people are operating from perspectives that don't actually accurately map the reality of the investment model. We have false expectations. We have silly expectations. So everything that I want to create in terms of a structure, it's. I almost feel like this is a new chapter for me in terms of coaching because I did the technical stuff. Yeah. I ran the CFP stable. And it's where I sort of want it right now. You know, it's performing and it's good. And there's a certain amount of uh, satisfaction around that and good connections with the players. But far and away, what I learned is that we are not able to save someone who's operating from distortion. And m- m- far and away, that distortion comes from having a structural misunderstanding of the poker investment model. Yep. That could be that you don't understand pot odds, or it could be that you don't accurately understand variance and what it can do to you. Yeah. So I really want to create a Uh, Part of uh, what I think I'm going to end up doing for Solve for Why when we partner up is I want to create the best structure ever for preparing a player for the inevitability of the cognitive dissonance he will face during the career. All the components of it. Do you have your bankroll mapped out? Yep. Because so much of this, I think, is preventative if we had a structurally clear map. This is great. I have, I literally have tangible things that I've,
0: I've like spent the time with tools to map out to create like backing contract, not contracts, but uh, propositions, right? Like where the the backer has skin in the game and the backee both have skin in the game. Just a litany of, of uh, investment models because I agree with you. I think that like we treat this far too much like a game of Monopoly rather than a, a game that's being played on Wall Street. And uh, you know, it excites me to hear you say these kinds of things because I, I'm gonna say something that like Maybe is obvious, but You're maybe... you tell me you love me? Uh, we're not there yet, man. Episode three. Uh, I, can't, I can't do chin like that, you know? Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but what, what I'm going to say that, you know, it may be obvious, but maybe it's just completely under the rug and people don't understand. There's somewhere between 5 and $8 million annually spent on poker training. That's the market cap. Some, it's a range somewhere between five, maybe even up, upwards of 10, because it's difficult to estimate the amount of private coaching that's taking place. But roughly 5 to $10 million is being poured into poker training every single year. How negative of an ROI do you think the collective has?
1: There was a thing that I said a while back before I left Run at once. And again, it's nothing to do with them. It's virtually every coaching platform out there right now. I estimated that less than 20% of players actually ever move up stakes who join coaching yep.
0: sites. I think that's accurate. And I'm saying this for, for two reasons. One, I'm putting this on the audience, right? I think that they are choosing willfully to waste their money on the next brightest and shiniest product because some name put it out or some uh, well-received critically acclaimed review came out or whatever. Basically, they're all looking for the magic pill. And, you know, I'm the first to say that it absolutely doesn't exist. But secondarily, coaches as a whole, be it training sites, individual or otherwise, absolutely have done nothing to exemplify and consider what the true problems that plague the community actually are. And that is completely demonstrated in the products that are on the market. They are all some variation of a PO solve when the collective have no idea what to do with that data.
1: I think the only thing that can be done to correct the problem is to raise awareness around the root of the problem. We're at the stage now where- And I think you
0: hit that. I think that's why I brought this up is I do believe that the root cause, as you were kind of alluding to, fundamentally number one out of the gate is investment strategies. People have a very poor correlation between emotion investment and uh the technical side of things
1: because if more po solves was what it was going to take we would be there already right and i think what we keep doing which seems so silly to me is as coaches we're doubling down on the same system that has proven futile yeah and like if you look at history it's very clear that the first person to break out of a feudal pattern is usually not a popular opinion. Right. But how much more time do we need and how much more suffering do we need to pile on as an industry? Right. Which really, like, to me, this is not about becoming the next training site that solved the problem. This is about solving collective suffering on a wide spread scale so that we can leverage this industry which has a lot of beautiful minds in it towards the next awesome thing where we can take the rational capacity that we developed as poker players going through the dark age and say okay let's apply this to the next market which might be a way bigger market where we can unify
0: almost certainly will be a bigger market and i'm i'm all for that right like that's truly what i aspire to do i don't want to get rich off of poker players paying me for coaching I want to get skilled and I want to get calibrated at problem solving so that we can transition this into real world problems that are going to impact change in massive markets where there's actually, you know, room for us to have some sort of return and optimize in a way that is beneficial to everybody involved.
1: If I had to paint my perfect picture for how this whole thing plays out, I am much more interested in ending up with a Core unit of 20 guys who think really, really smart, visionaries who are very balanced on the analytical and the intuitive plane. Yep, not making another dollar off of training, but just finding that pack of guys, yeah, when girls, and leveraging that into the next awesome thing where it's like totally unified value arbitrage from that point on yeah. to the massive think tank that is so much more powerful and the connection. And fulfillment that develops from having people who are that balanced in your inner circle. The support system there 20 20 people is all I want from the entire poker project.
0: And also just the amount of uh, being battle tested that poker puts you through. Like it really is, it's no accident that so much AI is being tested in this realm, right? It's the perfect Petri dish for developing real world strategies to living a more optimized life as a society, as a collective, as an individual, whatever you want to look at it as. This is, this, this is a developmental industry where the brightest and the, the most intelligent are going to scale to really high performing uh,
1: attributes to the rest of the world, I think. Performing being the key word, I think, because again, just to bring it back to my number one performance law currently... The guys who are going to get out of this and go on to do great things are the guys who are able to navigate cognitive dissonance yeah. with the most tact, Cognitive efficiency. dissonance
0: is a hell of a drug, man.
1: It's the only drug. Yeah. We're all under the spell of dissonance and we're all trying to break out. And the solutions are highly counterintuitive and there's a lot of paradox involved. Yeah. And in order to get to that, to that level, I think you need to go through a front load of suffering so that you can build up the type of grit that allows you to surrender to the truth of the matter which is that you can't figure it all out analytically and you can't memorize it. And you're going to have to trust yourself at some point. All the scariest things for a codependent mind to have to deal with. But on the other side, beautiful Graceland. Because now there's freedom, independence, higher capacity for rational thought, higher capacity for connection with another human being. Important for anybody who wants to map to fulfillment, a lot of good things. Just all good things come from thinking more clearly under pressure.
0: Or joining the Nick Howard cult.
1: Joining the cult, we're drinking the Kool-Aid <laughs> next week, Friday, 7 p.m. Perfect, so speaking of next week, um, can I get you for one more? Yeah, I'm here, I live here, I enjoy being here. Okay. The office could use a little bit of an upgrade, but we're working on it.
0: We, we got some time. Uh, I head to Florida tomorrow, but I'll be back middle of next week, so same time, same place, same bat channel uh me you one more time before chin graces us with his appearance from uh his deep dr tan
1: i miss chin and i can't wait to see the
0: tan yeah those coconuts
1: thanks to everybody who uh is doing what it actually takes to get to the next level i have deep appreciation for anybody in the industry who's actually trying and i just want to say that if the impression is being given off that I don't care about the low performer. I know you're very clear on this point. Yeah. You almost have more faith in humanity than I do. Sure. Uh, it's not that I don't care about the low performer who opts out. I care deeply and empathize with that. But my, my patience is with the person who's available to the upgrade. And, yeah. and my passion is in providing the types of perspectives that could get someone there. Yeah. So everything that I hope we do together is geared towards creating, a, creating that doorway for the person who really wants it but didn't have the tools to be able to walk through. And I feel like that's the thing I never had. So maybe it's the reason that I stayed same. around. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a complex, but it's also an awesome thing.
0: Right, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's whatever. Like we're all living in some sort of shadow where we're trying to make it better for the next generation to come. So it's like, we ain't got kids, you guys are our kids.
1: It's funny, I never thought I'd be having the veteran conversation, but I feel like we are moving. I mean, you certainly are, cause you're older than me, but we're heading into a, a phase now where we are clearly holding the torch, I think, for whether or not this gets done yeah. or not. Yeah, yeah. like if, if we don't do it, I don't know who will.
0: Right, because there's no incentive. We're not going to get rich off this.
1: But I also just don't hear these types of perspectives being talked about.
0: Because the money grab is in, in staying in the constructed paradigm. right? It's, it's keeping it with status quo. Don't challenge it. Just keep coming up with another transaction. But here, another here's, the, here's getting... the last
1: thing that I'll say, and I feel strongly about this, and this is the most transparent thing I'll probably ever say publicly. Don't get me wrong. I like money, but I'm just much more clear that the macro path, the best business path, is to do things for free from a good place and eventually have a collective of people who are so powerful that we can actually make real money yeah, down yeah. the road doing something. Like the smartest thing from a personal pure intention just happens to be the smartest business plan too. I agree. And I see an industry that's using up all their leverage early and I don't understand it. I don't understand the desperateness behind needing to capitalize it's, on something when there's a much bigger problem. It's, it's it's the sky is falling syndrome, right? It's
0: smash and grab. It's get, it, get in while the getting's good. Like they saw what happened between 2003 and 2008 and most missed the boat because they're too young. They weren't around during the glory days. Or they were like me and were in college and too poor to really capitalize. I made money during that time frame, but not millions like I could have, right? Millions of dollars were taking place. So now we're in the glory days of training. The, the 2012 to 2000 and who knows, 20, 22, 25, where $5 million, $8 million, $10 million a year is being spent and everybody wants their slice of that pie. So you're seeing a new training site crop up every single day. There's another one, Finding Equilibrium. I actually think the YouTube channel is fantastic. I anticipate that the product will be good, but it's literally just another guy doing solves and running you through the videos of it. And at some point, like somebody's gonna understand that it's necessary to be a contrarian and just say like, hey, I've been doing these solves for
1: years and I'm still goddamn broke. Or they'll get more time doing solves and that's all good too. Sure. Everybody will take as long as it takes to realize that they need to make a change, and that's fine. I, the last point, the only reason that I really want to be in coaching still is because I really feel like certain people out there don't need the the stubborn path to learn. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we could streamline this. Right. If we just point out that you're gonna get five, five more years of solves, or you can do it now. If I can create a logical enough argument for why what you're doing is silly, we might save people years of time. Yeah. That's a very valuable thing. I to agree. Me. Yeah, I agree. Completely. But again, only because I wasted time, so I'm biased in that sure. sense. All right, next week I'll bring the tanning lotion. We we'll do the my ties. <laughs> Let's blend it up here and, and we can actually have like a real vacation type pod. Oh yeah, we're
0: just we're just going to have a real this is going to be the chill week tropical podcast. All
1: right, the the uh, get
0: real podcast. I love it. All right, perfect. Thanks, man.